Thanks so much, uh, Hannah. Um, great to uh, have you here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Johnny, pastor here at Redeemer. If I've not met you before, um, very quick before we jump into this, uh, last week I made um, announced that we were going to have an event, a Redeemer Extra event, thinking about same-sex attraction and Christianity. And I just want to confirm the date with you because uh, we weren't clear when it was going to be. It's going to be the 25th of November, Thursday evening, the 25th of November, and we're going to be using the Baptist Church. Uh, in town, but look out for, for emails and, and kind of updates on that. But 25th of November for the Redeemer Extra. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we have the words of you, the words of your Son, because of your Spirit. And we pray this morning as we come to these words, which on the face of it don't seem straightforward to us, that your Spirit would give us hearts that believe, that understand, and that are filled with the joy that Jesus talks about pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It'd be great to have that passage open in front of you and say it's not necessarily straightforward, is it, when you have it read and, and you look at it for the first time. Um, but the passage we looked at last week, if you were here, that, that was a real tough one. Not, not so much because it was hard to understand what Jesus was saying, but actually it was very clear what Jesus was saying. Last week, Jesus was saying to his disciples, if you follow me, life will be tough. And at its worst, if you follow me, then you will be hated, uh, you'll be hunted down, you'll be tortured, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be put to death. That, that, that's life at its worst, if you follow me, says Jesus. And then, straight after he said that, he says in verse 5, in our reading, uh, by the way, I'm going, I'm leaving. Life following me is really, really tough, and uh, I'm off. And so, of course, the disciples' reaction in verse 6 is, is, is completely understandable, isn't it? They are, they are filled with grief at the thought of Jesus going. Grief because they've, they've shared their life with this man for the last three years. He's, he's given them a sense of, of hope, uh, of what the possibility of a, a world put right could look like. Grief because of that. But grief as well, because are they going to have to face all of this suffering on their own? Their response makes sense. But actually, what Jesus says next, on the face of it, makes no sense whatsoever. He says back to them in verse 7, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. How can it be for their good that Jesus is going away? You know, sometimes we are happy when people leave. You know, certain relatives have been staying for maybe a little bit too long and we're kind of happy when you see the car pulling away or, you know, your boss leaving the staff Christmas meal a bit early. It's, it's kind of less awkward, isn't it? You can enjoy yourself a little bit more. But, but Jesus leaving, that can't be a good thing, can it? Well, it is because Jesus going means that more help is coming. I was listening to a, uh, a podcast about this incredible story of survival in the Andes. So, so back in the 70s, there was a plane carrying a Uruguayan rugby team, and it was flying over the Andes, and it crash-landed in the mountain range. And, and they were about, after two months, that nobody had found them. And 16 survivors were, were holding on to life, waiting to be rescued. Eventually, two of the strongest in that group said, we are going, we're leaving. And the others in, in, in the group said, look, please don't go, you're the strongest, you're the ones who, who, who can help us if you stay. But they insisted. 
And they packed up what supplies they had, and these two men hiked for 30 miles. They scaled mountains until six days later they found help. And then they returned with a helicopter, supplies, and rescuers. It is for your good that I'm going away, says Jesus, because my going means rescue. Jesus doesn't go through mountain ranges. He goes via the cross. That's what we've kept saying. That's what he means when he says, I'm going. I'm going via the cross. The cross that brings salvation, the cross that brings rescue, not only to his disciples, but to all who had put their faith in him. And his going means that he can send back help. He can send the Spirit. It is for your good that I go, because my going means rescue, and my going means more help to come. I'm going to think of three ways in which Jesus' going means more for us. So first of all, Jesus' going means we have more of the Spirit who convicts the world. Have a look again um, at verse 7. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, the advocate is another name for the Holy Spirit. We thought about this a a few weeks back. And we have talked a lot about the Spirit already in these chapters. We've seen that the Holy Spirit is the great blessing of the Christian life. Because he brings Jesus and the Father to us in a a dynamic and real way. He helps us to experience the love of Christ. And he helps us to live a Christ-like life. He is the greatest blessing the Christian enjoys. But here in verses 8 to 11, we see that the Spirit isn't only sent for the benefit of believers, but he is also sent to serve non-believers. He is sent for the sake of those who don't yet trust Jesus, for the sake of the world, as Jesus describes them. So have a look at verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Do you see, how how does the Spirit serve the world? How does he serve the non-believer? By proving them wrong. Now, maybe you're thinking, that's the kind of service I can do without. There's enough people already making me feel bad about my life. Do Do we really need the Spirit of God to add to that pylon? But this is different. This isn't vindictiveness. This isn't pride, loving to see other people in the wrong. This is compassion. This is love. You see, Jesus has just said, the world, the non-believing world, is going to crucify me. And his response, well, he doesn't give up. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't think, well, fine, in the most literal sense of the word, go to hell. No, he doesn't hate those who hated him. Instead, he sends his spirit. Yes, to convict. Yes, to prove that the world is wrong. But so that they would turn to Jesus and find true life and salvation and forgiveness. It's what he did for me. 
Let me show you how three ways we see here the Spirit proved me wrong, and if you're a Christian, proved you wrong as well. The Spirit showed me I was wrong about Jesus in verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me. That the greatest sin, the greatest transgression, the greatest error anyone can make is not to believe in Jesus. I mean, just stop and think what it is we're doing when we don't believe in Jesus. So Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and the world says back, no, you are not. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can have life without me, and the world says back, you are lying. Jesus says, believe in me or you will die in your sins. And the world says back, you're mad. See, it's not just indifference when we don't believe in Jesus. We are saying something about who he is. The greatest sin, the greatest transgression and error we make is not to believe in Jesus, to effectively call Jesus the Son of God a liar. So the Spirit convicts us that we are wrong to think that about Jesus. Second, he showed me that I was wrong about life, or certainly what the good life was like. It's there in verse 10. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. That's odd, isn't it? What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus demonstrated in his life what true righteousness looked like, what true goodness looked like, and he was killed for it. But as Jesus says in verse 9 and 10, I I am going to the Father. The Father will raise me up and he will vindicate my life. It's like this. The world at the time looked at Jesus' life and the verdict was crucify him. They thought that that kind of life, his actions, his words, his teaching, his attitude, all of it was worthy not of admiration, not of imitation, but only worthy of death. That's the world's verdict on Jesus' life. The Father in heaven looked down at his Son on earth and his verdict of his life, perfect. That is the good life. That is the righteous life. That is how life is meant to be lived. And so the Father raises Jesus from the dead and welcomes him back into glory. You see, the Spirit shows us that we are wrong about life, about what the good life looks like. We are wrong when we consider Jesus and his teachings not to be good. And finally, the Spirit showed me that I was wrong in the sense that I was on the wrong side. There in verse 10, 11, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The prince of this world is another name for the devil. The devil is, is the greatest opponent of Jesus. He is evil personified. And the spirit convicts us, he shows us, he showed me that if I'm not on the side of Jesus then in the end, I am on the side of the prince of this world. And that is not going to end well. All those not on the side of Jesus will be condemned like the prince of this world. 
So the Spirit convinces and convicts the world, people like you and me, that we are wrong. We are wrong about Jesus. He really is the Son of God. We are wrong about life. Jesus and his teaching really is the standard of goodness. And we are on the wrong side. We will be condemned if we don't come to Jesus. And it may just be that this morning the Spirit is convicting your heart. Maybe you've never given Jesus much thought. Maybe you think he's irrelevant. Are you sure you're right about that? Maybe you think you know what the good life looks like and it's not Jesus and his teachings. Are you sure you're right about that? Maybe you think not being a Christian puts you on the right side the side of progress, the side of freedom and love and acceptance. But are you sure about that? Our culture has thrown off Jesus and his teachings, and yet it seems to be, doesn't it, that our culture feels more divided than ever, more angry, less tolerant. Are you sure you're on the right side? Is the Spirit convicting you this morning? If so, come to Jesus and find forgiveness in life. And for those of us who are Christians, who've experienced this convicting work, who've who've come to Jesus and said, I I am wrong, I was wrong. For those of us, let's make sure our priority is the Spirit's priority. When we pray for our world, when we pray for those around us, yes, we we do want to pray for for whatever we're passionate about, whether that's answers for climate change or, or justice or praying for less division in our culture, but make sure first and foremost we pray for this, that the Spirit would more and more convict those around us that they are wrong when it comes to Jesus and life and that they are on the wrong side. May this be our primary prayer. Come, Spirit, and convict the world. Not because we're vindictive or full of pride, but because we're full of compassion. We want people to know Christ now while they can. So Jesus leaving means first we have more of the Spirit who convicts the world. His leaving means we also have more of the Son who is our joy. See that in our second point. Now, the next part of Jesus' teaching, we're going to skip over a few verses. The next part of Jesus' teaching, it starts with confusion in verse 16. Just listen to this, and it just seems like an odd kind of incident, doesn't it? Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. It's kind of an odd exchange, isn't it? And I do feel for the disciples here. It does sound a little bit cryptic, doesn't it? Jesus, are you you coming or or are you going? Are you you leaving or, or are you staying? So Jesus tries to clear things up in verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, 
while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. See, Jesus is is likening the next few days for his disciples to a woman in labor. Now, just a little aside here, men. Normally when a guy tries to speak as though he understands what it's like to go through labor, it doesn't end well. So maybe don't necessarily imitate Jesus on this one. But but he's trying to explain to them an image that they can understand about how it's going to feel over these next few days. And at first, Jesus says, look, there'll be grief. The the disciples are going to see Jesus arrested and tortured and hung upon a cross and left for dead. And so they will weep and mourn. But that grief will turn to joy on resurrection morning when Jesus, as Jesus says in verse 22, I will see you again. See, for the disciples, first there will be grief because Jesus is taken away. But then there will be joy because Jesus is restored to them, present with them. And I think the reason there is so much about this in this section is because it serves as a pattern for our discipleship of Jesus. Our our situation is not the same as those disciples, but like them, we don't see Jesus now. He's not physically with us. And there is a grief that we experience Grief because we live in a world hostile to Jesus. Grief because we can't see him. Grief because the world that we're left in is a broken world. There is grief and sorrow. But, as with the disciples, so with us, one day we will see Jesus again. And that sadness will turn to joy when we see him physically before us in glory. You see, for the disciples, it it was grief followed by joy. And for us, it is grief now followed by joy one day. That's all kind of straightforward, but here's what I think is really important for us to see. Have a look again at verse 22. Look what Jesus says about that joy. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. It's interesting, isn't it? The joy they will experience when they see Jesus on resurrection morning, risen again from the dead, that joy no one will take away from them. It will be theirs forever. But do you see, that must mean one thing. If sorrow comes because Jesus is absent and joy comes because Jesus is present, then if that joy on resurrection morning remains with them forever, it must mean one thing, that Jesus will remain with them forever, present with them. And that's what we've seen in these chapters already. Yes, Jesus is leaving, but then he gives us his spirit and in doing so he gives us himself. He leaves, but like those survivors who left the group in the Andes, he returns. By his spirit, he is present with us. 
And that is why for those disciples that joy will never be taken away because Jesus will never be taken away from them. So yes, we do experience sorrow now and we experience sadness now, but for us, it's not just sorrow followed by joy or or grief followed by gladness. No, it's sorrow and joy. It is grief and gladness because Jesus is present with us even now. We experience the sorrow of this world, but we also experience the joy of Jesus with us. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a moment when Pippin sees the wizard Gandalf. It's a moment in the story when there's already been so much sadness and so much sorrow, but as Pippin looks at Gandalf and his face, something deep and joyful rises up within him. Listen to this uh, Alexa. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been so joyful and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth or or laughter, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Jesus brings joy. He is a fountain of laughter, enough to set an entire... Oh, good save, Andrew. Good save. We'll just leave it down, yeah. He is a fountain of joy, enough to set an entire kingdom laughing. It's really interesting for us, isn't it? In a world, in a culture, in a time that feels so gripped by fear, when we feel often so controlled by fear, Jesus gives us this alternative experience, one marked not by fear, but by joy, by hope. How is he able to do that? Why is his presence with us such a source of great joy? Well, it's because of what he says right at the end of our section in verse 33. He says, as he finishes off his kind of final speech to his disciples, take heart, be of good cheer. That's what it means. Take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus is the great overcomer, and he is always with us. And he is smiling, he is laughing, because he knows how it will end. He knows it will end with us and him in a world put right. And the smile that brings to our face now, knowing that the great overcomer is always with us, is just a foretaste of the deep laughter we will experience in his kingdom forever. A kingdom not gripped or marked by fear, but one marked and gripped by deep joy. A joy that we can begin to experience and taste even now. So that for the believer, it is not just sorrow followed by joy. It is sorrow and joy as we wait for Christ to return. So Jesus leaving means more of the Spirit who convicts the world, more of the Son who is our joy even now, and finally more of the Father who loves us. In verse 23, it looks like Jesus is starting to talk about prayer, and he is. He says, verse 23, 
Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And what a promise. We looked at this promise a few weeks back. But it is an incredible promise. And here is another reminder that if you are lacking something, that the Lord wants to give you peace, assurance, strength to fight sin, a deeper sense of his presence in your life. If you are lacking those things, then it may well be that you're not asking for them in prayer. What a great promise. Ask for anything in my name and my Father will give it to you. But I think Jesus is, isn't just talking about prayer here. I think there's something else going on, something bigger, something more foundational than prayer. Because he's talking about our very relationship with God the Father. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. Do you see what he's saying? Everything I've been trying to communicate to you, everything I've been trying to teach you, Jesus says, ultimately it's all about the Father. You see, for Jesus, knowing the Father, being brought into what you'd say is deep communion, deep relationship with the Father, that is what it is all about. It's what it's all about for Jesus. Look at verse 28. I came from the Father, entered the world, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. He came from the Father and he longs to return to the Father for eternity past. Jesus the Son has been with the Father and for all eternity to come, he longs to be with his Father. It's all about the Father for Jesus. And he says it should be all about the Father for us as well. Verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, still talking about prayer, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. Do you hear what Jesus said? I won't speak to the Father on your behalf as if you need a go-between. No, you can ask the Father directly for whatever it is you need because the Father loves you. It is all about the Father being known by him and being loved by him. That is what Jesus has been trying to communicate throughout his ministry. That is why he came and died and rose again. All Jesus' teaching, what is it ultimately about? It's about the Father. All Jesus' work, all that he did, what is it ultimately about? Knowing God the Father. He went to the cross He died in my place. He cleansed my heart and my life of sin. Why? So that the Spirit could then dwell in my heart so that I could know God the Father. It's all about the Father. Knowing the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The Father himself loves you. You see, the richest and most meaningful life is a life lived in communion with God the Father. That's the life Jesus lived, and he died that we might live that life as well. Whatever we do with our life, whatever career we have, whatever our achievements, the most precious and meaningful thing about our life 
is whether or not we know the Father and live our lives with him. Our children, well, at least um, some of them anyway, are, are kind of still of that age where they, they actually like hanging around with me. You know, I, I, I reckon I've got another year or two left, and, and then that will probably change. Uh, but, but being a pastor means that, that I'm kind of out a fair bit. We've got meetings, especially kind of in the evening, uh, head out. And if I've got to go to a meeting, and I'm just kind of heading to the door, then, then one or two of them will, will kind of stand in the way and say, no, you can't go. You've got to stay. You're not allowed to go. It's all very sweet. It's sweet the first time. It's really annoying when it's every day. Um, but the thing is, they don't want me to stay because they need my help or anything. It's not that they've got some particular activity that they want me to do. Now, as, as odd as this might sound to you, and, and it sounds a bit odd to me as well, they just want me to be around. In fact, when I am around, they don't really care too much what we do, whether it's kind of making a fire or we go to Sainsbury's, do some shopping, or whether it's playing games. For them... Above all else, it is about the relationship they experience with me, their dad. So it is with us and God the Father. Whatever we do with our lives, whatever career we have, whatever we look back and think, I'm pleased with that, the only thing that really and truly and ultimately brings meaning and significance to our lives is whether we know God the Father and experience those things with him. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go. Why? Because Jesus' going means he can send help. He can send us more. More of the Spirit who convicts the world more of the Son who is our joy and more of the Father who loves us. Remember quiet and I'm going to pray. It is to your advantage that I go. Heavenly Father, we are sorry that we just do not comprehend, we do not appreciate, we do not understand quite the blessing that we enjoy now because Jesus went to the cross for us, because he cleansed our hearts, because he sent his spirit back to dwell in our hearts. The immense blessing that we can experience now of knowing you and knowing your Father. Please, we pray that much more in the forefront of our minds would be the reality of the life we have now, a life lived in union with you, in deep communion with you and your Father. We thought about joy, we thought about fear. We pray that when we experience the sadness and sorrows of this world, to know that you, the Son, the great overcomer is with us, might soften that sadness with joy. And that promise that we can ask for anything in your name and the Father will delight to give it to us. We pray that we would believe that promise and act upon it and be more prayerful. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.